Greetings, LARP Book Club members and Radio Hour listeners. I'm Boris Drelouk, Editor-in-Chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books, and my discussion partner for this session is Medea Ocher, co-host of the LARP Radio Hour. We are honored to be joined by one of the most daring and protean literary voices working today, Namwali Serpel, to speak about her latest work, The Furrows, which came out from Hogarth this September. Serpel is a Zambian-born novelist and essayist and a professor of English at Harvard University. Her debut novel, The Old Drift, a genre-bending saga tracing the legacies of three families, appeared in 2019 and won the Annis Field Wolf Book Award, the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Science Fiction, and the Los Angeles Times Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction. Her equally unclassifiable, and that's a compliment, work of nonfiction, Stranger Faces, appeared the following year as part of Transit Books' series of undelivered lectures and was a finalist for a National Book Critics Circle Award. Serpel is also the recipient of a 2020 Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize, the 2015 Kane Prize for African Writing, and a 2011 Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award. Like The Old Drift, The Furrows defies narrative conventions and readerly expectations, but it does so with a narrower aim and view, homing in on the after effects, which are, truth be told, manifold, of a particular, though uncertain trauma, an event that fractures the protagonist's life and sense of self at a tender age. Blamed for the death of her younger brother, Cassandra is haunted by the presence of his absence, or is it simply his presence, for the rest of her days. What Sir Pell's novel tells us is what Cassandra promises to tell us, not what happened, but how it felt. Welcome, Namali. Namali, maybe we can just start with how you came to the story and where it began for you. I had a dream in 2008 or so in which I was swimming in the water with a young boy, which, who I now retrospectively believe was my nephew, Cheza, who is now college age. And a storm picked up and I was trying to swim him to shore. And I had a lot of trouble staying on top of the water myself and was in this kind of mode of survival combined with trying to save him. And when I woke up, the particular mixture of feeling that I had of love and tenderness for this young person with a kind of grip of panic and a sense of loss, even though the dream cut before any actual loss took place. And obviously in my real life, Cheza is still alive and thriving. That combination of feeling reminded me very much of dreams that I had when my late sister died where I would imagine that she was still alive. And in the dream, she would tell me that she had taken a trip. She had gone somewhere and that she had just returned. And that this feeling that she had actually passed was, in fact, the illusion. And I would wake up and then I would remember all over again that she was, in fact, dead. And I would feel, again, this combination of deep longing to reunite with her and to save her with this panic and feeling of loss. It was as though grief simply erupted all over again. And so I decided to follow the, the story of the young boy who had in my dream vanished into the water and construct a character who would be his older sister 
who I named Cassandra, and to follow their story in order to try to reenact what seemed to me to be this experience of grief that was familiar not just to me, but to many of the people I've spoken with who've experienced loss in their life as well. Yes, the novel does leave us feeling repeatedly bereft and uncertain about the ontological nature of the loss, but feeling that loss very deeply. I wonder, you said that you built Cassandra around this dream. Did you build the entire plot around this dream? And did you look for other narrative models for this kind of Mm. work in which a scene is revisited and revised time and again? My relationship to previous models of literature is both incredibly immersive and quite oblique, if not elusive to me. So I had read and studied and spent a lot of time with the work of William Faulkner, the work of Virginia Woolf, the work of Toni Morrison, all of whom I would consider modernists. Some people want to say that Morrison is postmodern, but I think she's a modernist at heart. And she, in fact, studied Woolf and Faulkner for her master's degree. And because I had been thinking about literary uncertainty in writing my dissertation at the time, I was very engaged with questions of repetition as a form of creating uncertainty, questions of multiplicity as a form of creating uncertainty. So there's definitely many, many sources of inspiration. But when I sat down to write the book, I wasn't picking up The Sound of the Fury or picking up Beloved or The Bluest Eye in order to think about these narrative structures. It was more that I had absorbed some sense of how they would work and what kind of aesthetic and affective implications they had. And I could work with them in order to mold the story I wanted to tell as much as possible to resemble the vision that I had in my head. That vision of having multiple inscriptions of the loss, I remember very specifically when it came to me that this was how I was going to write the book. I was staying in New York in an Airbnb in Park Slope, and I woke up from a dream about my sister. And I thought, oh, the only way to actually capture this intense combination of feeling is to actually make the reader undergo it, to imagine that we have this child back and then to lose him all over again. But what I knew is that if I were to repeat the same kind of loss, and just to say that the novel begins with Cassandra losing her little brother Wayne on the beach, but the later inscriptions of loss happen at a park that they visit and as they walk to school together, alone together, that by changing up the inscription of loss, I could make it more palpable because if I were to repeat the same loss again and again, the reader, I think, would lose some sense of its reality or its vivacity. There's a phenomenon called semantic satiation. It's like when you say the same word over and over again, it starts to seem empty of meaning. And I think the same thing happens with event. If we think about Beckett or Groundhog's Day, you get the same quality of a loss of eventness or vivacity. And so I thought, well, the best way to reinscribe this is to have certain details be exactly the same. She's 12, he's seven, they're alone together. There are certain words that repeat in each of the losses, but to have the way in which he gets lost be different. 
That's fascinating. And in a way, it's a commentary on the viability of fiction because fiction itself is a, a lie that gets at a deeper truth. And so by fictionalizing the story, by revising the story, instead of just repeating the facts over and over again, you reawaken the impact. So it's a kind of argument for fiction in a way. Absolutely. I mean, I think the entire novel is an argument for fiction in certain ways because so many of the characters are engaged in trying to establish the facts or trying to establish the truth, trying to understand what happened. So Cassandra's father, for example, one of the repeated tropes in each of the losses is that there's the presence of this older white man wearing a blue windbreaker. And her father seeks this man out, thinking that he will have some information about how his son was taken from them. Cassandra's mother creates a foundation for missing children, and her interest there is to find him, that she thinks he's just missing somewhere because there's no body recovered from these losses. And Cassandra holds on to her certitude that she felt or experienced Wayne die before his body went missing. So all of them are so committed to fact and certainty in some ways that the counter to that is how does the mind grapple with loss by conjuring fiction? And in some ways I'm doing the inverse, right? I'm trying to create loss by using the conjuring power of fiction. Well, on that note, I, I wonder how the conjuring of fiction in this book affected your own experience of loss, if you don't mind talking about that. They seem so linked in terms of your own dreams of your, about your family and your sister. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of imperative in our contemporary discourse to track the relationship between the fictions that we create and our experience in life. And this revolves very often around our ongoing debate about autofiction, as it's called. And I think for me, the what's much more interesting than the direct correspondence between the fact and the fiction is the alchemy that goes into transmuting the one into the other. And so for me, the process of writing the novel was not therapeutic in any fashion. I think there's this hope that we can write our way into healing. But part of what I was doing is trying to inscribe the experience of mourning as something that doesn't correspond to a narrative, to a narrative arc or to a, a teleology where you move toward or move through the stages of grief and end up in a better place. Had I been using the novel to write about my own experience, it would have more likely been re-traumatizing <laughs> than it would have been healing. And in fact, I've talked to some people recently who have written memoirs about very traumatic things in their life, and they have not found that process to be therapeutic at all. They have found it actually to be what one friend said it was re-triggering in a lot of ways. But I think the desire to use narrative as a way to psychologically process grief doesn't quite do justice to again, the obliquity and complexity of the relationship between what we experience and what we choose to make art out of. So James Joyce famously in Ulysses puts in the mouth of Stephen Dedalus an interpretation of Hamlet that has to do with Shakespeare's loss of his son, whose name was Hamnet. And 
Shakespeare also had lost his father, John Shakespeare, relatively close to the writing of Hamlet. But it would be almost impossible for us to imagine, almost unfathomable for us to imagine that Shakespeare wrote Hamlet in order to heal from those deaths, right? And I go back that far in part to show just how recent this obsession with a direct correspondence between fact and fiction is. It has always been the case that fact is drawn into the artistic process, into the artistic representation. But we're in this post-Freud moment, I think, where we believe that that connection is much more holistic, when it's actually quite strange and unusual. And what is created from that alchemy very often bears little to no resemblance to the experience that the artwork drew from. One very obvious kind of example is just how different Cassandra is from me (laughs) in various aspects. You know, she's experienced things that I've experienced, but she's a, a very, very different person. The term is sublimation for this transformation, this alchemy, and it's, it really is a complicated thing. And at its best, it brings about some kind of catharsis, but healing is not the term, probably. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question about the link, though, between, let's say, your experience and Cassandra's experience. Yeah. And that's a question that has to do with very vital issues that are subtle but profound of race that you bring up in this novel. That has to do with the unexamined privilege of Cassandra's mother, Charlotte, Mm -hmm. and the way that that grief is leveraged in the world. And also the expectations placed to Cassandra, which I think are really beautifully handled as a multiracial person, the pressure she feels to be a certain kind of person because she is in between. Yes. When you said about writing the novel, were these issues that you hoped to explore or did they accrue around the character as she made her way through the narrative? That's a good question. I don't remember specifically assigning a racial identity to any of my characters. And this is true in in The Old Drift as well. And part of that is because as mystical as that sounds, my characters feel to me like they exist already and I'm learning about them rather than creatures I'm fashioning and kind of applying certain features or traits to. And I think, you know, there's definitely a psychologist who would be like, well, obviously you were trying to work out, you know, your feelings about being a mixed race person growing up in the Baltimore suburbs as well. But to me, there's so many differences and nuances within the very category of being mixed race that it was much more interesting to me to parse out the differences than the similarities. And one way to think about this is to look at the, there are are a number of mixed race characters in the old drift as well. And one of the things I was interested in exploring there was the differences between being a mixed race person or a colored person, as we're called in Zambia, who has a black parent and a white parent or a white parent and an Indian parent and being a colored person who has two colored parents, of which there are many. There are multi-generational coloreds in Lusaka. There's whole neighborhoods devoted to that and also in Zimbabwe. So there are many different kinds of mixed race people interacting with each other in the old drift. And I would say that Cassandra and her brother, Wayne, who grow up in an American context, have another 
different kind of relationship to being mixed race. So one very obvious difference and one that actually gets joked about a lot within the Black community, but having a white mother versus having a Black mother in America as a mixed race person has a lot of connotations accrue around that, actually. And I have a Black mother from Zambia, from, you know, that grew up in Zambia and that was married to my white father, who's British. So already there's these huge cultural differences, but also the races of the parents in the furrows are swapped in a way that I think makes it quite different. And I wouldn't be able to say, for example, that the complexity of Charlotte as a white American woman with a black son who she believes has been kidnapped or taken from her and her attempt to monetize her grief by creating a foundation has any relationship, for example, to how my British father would relate to losing a child. They're so different to me that it doesn't even seem sort of possible to me that they could come from the same place. Even, you know, the some of the uh, angst that Cassandra goes through in being a mixed-race person is very different from how I experienced being a mixed-race person in Baltimore. She goes to a primarily white school. I went to a primarily black school and I was very strongly affiliated with being an African immigrant, which is very different from being an African-American. So even differences like that mean that nothing about her high school experience would correspond to mine. There are certain, she has a French grandmother. I have no French relations, you know, (laughs) but it's, these are things that I sort of learn about my character. And I think it's an amalgamation of what I have experienced, for sure, combined with what other people have told me about their experience of being racialized or gendered and so on and so forth. You're listening to a special edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Nawali Serpel, author of the novel, The Furrows, and we'll return to that conversation in just a moment. We have Catherine Scanlon on the line with us today. Her new book is called Kick the Latch, and Catherine is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Catherine, what book are you going to recommend? I would like to recommend Testimony by Charles Reznikoff. Tell me more about it. What is that? I've not heard of it. So it's a book that I had heard about for a long time and had been meaning to read. And then I had read parts of it. And then when New Directions was going to publish my book, they were starting to write the copy for the jacket. And one of the editors there put in a reference to this book. And so I took that as a signal to go back and reread the things that I had read and then also finish the book. It's a huge book. It's a book of poetry. It's in the form that it was published in 2015, the most recent reissue, it's like over 600 pages long, I think. And it's a, a book that Reznikoff started as a prose book in the 30s, and he published it in like 1934, I think, in this early prose version. But then in the 50s, he went back to this material. And so the book is built from court testimonies in the United States. 
And so Reznikov was trained as a lawyer, but then he ended up not really practicing because he wanted to be a poet. But he worked as an editor and he, for a while, he was writing entries for like a legal encyclopedia, which meant that he read just thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of court records. And so the ones that are compiled in this book of poetry are from 1885 to 1915 in the U.S. Mm. And then the book is, he kind of like sections the book into years and then also regions of the United States. And, you know, so he's, he's making these poems that are pulled from this testimony, from these records, but he's also sort of condensing and honing and just completely stripping this, you know, very, a lot of times very charged material. You know, a lot of it is like horrible accidents and violent crime and shaping it into these just minimal, very restrained poems. It's an intense book. It's a kind of like almost unbearable book at times. Like it, I feel like it takes a while to get through it because some of the things are just really difficult to read, but I think it's a really important book. It sounds incredible. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? So the full title of the poem is Testimony, the United States, 1885 to 1915, Recitative. And Charles Reznikoff is the author. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thank you. We've been talking to Catherine Scanlon. Her new book is called Kick the Latch. Now, back to our conversation with Amwali Serpel. Within the book, there's personal loss of Cassandra's brother, but there's also over and over what seem to be major disasters that occur on like a much grander, bigger scale and much bigger losses. And I was curious if you could talk about that. Why accompany these moments? And often in the book, these moments will happen when Cassandra, it's the moment that she sees her brother in either someone, it's again, we don't really know, but someone else, or she believes it's him. And then suddenly the world sort of crumbles around her, literally. Yes, yes. Yeah. I think my, I wish I could source the origin of that as part of the novel. It became key to the novel so early on. I think I was trying to use what in literary studies we call the objective correlative. And the most classic example of that is it was a dark and stormy night, right? Where the weather or the external world mirrors or is meant to invoke some emotional feeling. I read, reread recently Toni Morrison's Tar Baby, where she does a similar thing with the environment around the characters on this island, where the the birds and the trees and the sky and the mountains are all responding somehow to this very, very intimate internal violence within a family. I think it was a way to try to literalize the truism that grief is a catastrophe and that the intensity of loss, the intensity of longing that Cassandra experiences in these moments where she 
believes she's recognized the grown-up version of the brother that she lost felt to me I could like I could only render the intensity of that combination of feeling by actually building it into the world of the novel itself. Yes, there's a fabular element to it. And of course, that also we saw in The Old Drift in a different way. But there's also something very cinematic about this particular book. And I thought not only of Groundhog Day, which is a much mm. lighter version of, <laughs> of this kind of repetition, but also of the streaming structure. You know, in, in some ways, this reminded me of some of the streaming series that come packaged in six or seven episodes oh. and, and revisit and revise in the same way that you revisit and revise original scenes as well as some of the horror pictures that we've seen recently and pictures about loss of memory in relationship to time. So this is a broad question. It's not about influence per se, but in a way about influence. What do you think is the position of literary fiction in a world that is so saturated with visual storytelling forms? And Mm. do you think about screens and the omnipresence of screens when you write, or do you kind of live in a screenless world Well, it's interesting. One of my reviews claimed that this was a novel written for television, which was so strange to me because I cannot imagine a single television producer being willing to adapt something quite so structurally experimental. But at the same time, I think what we've seen is a lot of recent film and television trying to represent visually techniques that have been around in fiction for a very long time. And so these genres borrow from each other all the time, back and forth. And the filmic quality of, say, the opening of Blood Meridian, where you get this huge pan and then you zoom in, right? These are things that, you know, writers are clearly borrowing. But at the same time, film is borrowing more and more, for example, the notion of narration, The voiceover used to be something that really bothered people. And now it's become so ubiquitous that it has just become part and parcel of how narrative film or TV series work. So this movement of formal devices back and forth between the genres, I think, is very old. Something that interests me, though, and so this goes to the question of influence, something like Vertigo or Psycho, structurally, both of those films are very influential on this novel in particular. They have less to do with the cinematic quality of the visual and more to do with structure. So the switch in Psycho halfway through, I won't spoil. I'm assuming everyone (laughs) in LA has seen Psycho, but if you haven't, it's great. And there's a wonderful twist in the middle. But that flip happens in my novel as well, where we switch perspectives to an entirely different cast of characters and perspective. And in Vertigo, the question of doubles and whether someone is or isn't alive obviously is clearly part of what I'm riffing on. These, again, are structural in some ways rather than visual per se. And in fact, what strikes me is the deep resistance to adaptation that is evident in a novel like The Furrows is the things that a novel can do that a film or a TV series can't do. And that has to do with consciousness. That has to do with our ability to be inside the mind of a character. And this is something that the novel has run with 
you know, since the modernists, since Proust, as the thing that distinguishes us from film and television. The voiceover is still kind of clunky as a way to get inside the mind of a, a character. And being able to make what a character experiences ambiguous can also be quite clunky in film. If you have a ghost, you make it kind of blurry. Whereas in The Turn of the Screw, the governess simply sees a person and doesn't know that it's a ghost because there's nothing distinguishing that figure in the world from anything else. And you as a reader believe it as well because there's nothing to indicate, right? And so, you know, things like A Beautiful Mind try to do a similar thing. And I think films like Memento try to do a similar thing, right? They try to use the affordances of film to create certain kinds of ambiguity. But the novel, I think, still has a hold in a way that other art forms don't on the movement of consciousness as we think and experience the world. Yes, it's the interior and there's no getting around it. Yeah. Maybe we should talk a little bit about incest. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I was like, how do I transition? Oh, <laughs> well, we're like keeping it all inside. Cut. Yes, that's, that's true. Yeah, yeah, like uh, yeah. A it, different kind of interior. It's coming from inside the house. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's this part of this novel where there's a sexual relationship between Cassandra and a man who she recognizes for a moment to be her brother. Yes. And I wonder if you could just talk about that. I mean, I think I have my theories about why mm. why that sexual relationship is almost necessary for her, but. Why do that? Why take that step? Yeah, I think there are obviously reasons why I want to rail against autofiction because <laughs> if I'm going to write about incest, it's like I'm going to have all these projections onto, onto me as though this is part of a desire that I have. I think I was interested in the long tradition of incest in the literary as a very specific way of crossing the wires between romantic love and familial love, and also setting up as a kind of impasse the relationship between the two, right? There's a taboo on sex with a family member, but there is also this kind of deep love that you have and this deep longing that you have. So I'm creating in Cassandra a kind of dilemma Basically, she can have love with this man if it's not her brother. But that means that she has to truly accept that her brother is dead. And so to have that as a kind of bind for her seemed to me to make the complexity of her disavowal of her grief that much knottier, much more of a, a Gordian knot. <laughs> and I think the relationship between... Cassandra and this man also allowed me to take to its kind of logical endpoint a theory of love in the contemporary world that I have a lot of trouble with and that I think we should be putting more pressure on. And that is the idea very perfectly encapsulated by Jerry Maguire when he says, you complete me. Right. So the idea that romantic love can heal some wound that you have, can fill some hole that's inside you, and that this means very often 
that you're asking another person, you know, someone entirely different from you to take on your own grief and to heal it. It also speaks to a philosophical problem that Morrison talks about a lot in her books, which is the notion that you can substitute one person for another. So if Cassandra is trying to replace her long lost brother with this man that she meets, she's making a kind of error of judgment, an error of the heart as well, because she's not actually taking this person for who he is. She's taking him for what he can do for her emotionally. And I think to show the perversity of that logic, which I personally think is very much a capitalistic logic of I can replace this person with somebody else in the same way that I can buy an object to substitute for something else, this logic of fungibility or exchangeability. To press upon the perversity of that logic through incest seemed to me to be a very canny way, perhaps, to get people to recognize that this desire for a perfect substitution or a perfect filling in of of whatever's missing in your life is in fact a kind of unethical way of thinking about other people. That makes a good deal of sense. And I suppose then, since we are frustrated in our logic by a narrative of this kind, I have a question about endings. How does a story like this come to an end? And what do you hope to leave readers with when you wipe them out in a way? I mean, that ties really beautifully into what I was just talking about, because one of the conversations that I had with early readers of the book, including editors and just readers, was this deep frustration with the fact that Cassandra and this man, Wayne, who is not her brother, but who she ends up in a sexual relationship with, that they don't sort of have a happy end. And there was this feeling of, this is a love story. And you've set us up to believe that it's a love story. And they have found each other in some way. And this coming together while it has caused catastrophe all around them also seems to be a way for Cassandra to get out of those loops that the repetition compulsion of melancholy has put her in. So can't we have a kind of grand unification at the end of the novel? And my solution to that was to build that possibility and then to once again, with my experiment with the objective correlative, burn it down. (laughs) So I sort of give us the possibility of a romantic ending and they go to an open house and there's this kind of tenderness between them and they seem to have found each other, having both been lost. And we then experience this catastrophe around them, which is at the same time that it destroys everything, also an assertion of this profusion of feeling, right? So we get love and loss coinciding in the great catastrophe, the apocalyptic quality that I think characterizes the grief that we feel for those that we love who we've lost. Well, 
it's a sad place to end maybe, but, but I think a really beautiful place to end. Thank you so much, Namali, for talking to us. Thanks so much for having me. We've been speaking with Namali Serpel, author of the novel, The Furrows. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the LARP Radio Hour. Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARP Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Ji-Ha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vodden. Thank you.